0: Today's passage is from Genesis, chapter 2, verse 25, through chapter 3, verse 13, and verses 21 and 22. Both the man and his wife were naked, yet felt no shame. Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, you must not eat it or touch it or you will die. No, you will not die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate it, and she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So the Lord God called out to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Then he asked, who told you that you were naked? Did you eat from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man replied, the woman you gave to be with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate. So the Lord God asked the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God made clothing from skins for the man and his wife, and he clothed them. The Lord God said, Since the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, he must not reach out, take from the tree of life, eat, and live forever. The word of the Lord.
1: Good morning, everyone. We can say good morning back, we can do that, good morning, yeah, thank you. My name's Eric, I'm one of the pastors here too. We are in a series for the season of Lent. We're calling it Questions That God Asks Us. Um, Throughout Scripture, God asks questions. There are actually a lot of questions that God asks us in Scripture. These questions that God asks, they're not for the sake of Him gaining information, He's a God of omniscience. He knows all things. But instead, when God asks a question, it's very significant because it's an opportunity for us to reflect and to be examined. It's an opportunity for us for examination. In each of God's questions, he reveals something of himself to us as he's revealing more about ourselves to us. So during Lent, we're going to be looking at six of these questions, some of the most probing questions that God asked, some of the most poignant questions throughout the Bible. Today, we're looking at the first of all the questions that God asked in Scripture in Genesis 3. As we heard it read by Sohi, we were hearing one of the most significant, probably one of the most important chapters in all of the Bible, in the Bible's story. You could say it's the most tragic chapter in the story of the Bible because it tells us the story of the fall of humanity into sin and away from God. There's so much there as, we were reading, as as you were hearing that being read, you probably had questions. You probably had a lot of questions and things that you were curious about. There's no way in one sermon for me to handle and address all of those questions This morning, our focus is going to be on one verse. We're going to look at some pieces of the story, but that verse is verse 9 of chapter 3, where God asks that first question to Adam, to Eve, where are you? That's the very first question in the Bible, and these are the very first words that God speaks after Adam and Eve eat of the tree. That he told them not to eat of. So sin has entered the world, God's good creation that's full of life, that's full of abundance and blessing. And now sin has entered into the lives of humanity, bringing curse and wreckage and ruin to everything that God has designed and created. And God's first response is this question Where are you? When I read this story in particular, that verse, that question, the first thing that I think of are times in my life when I was a child, when I was a kid, when I got in trouble and I hid from my parents because I didn't want to deal with what they were going to do to me. I think of times in our own parenting, we have four boys where our kids have done something and we found out about it and we call to them, Where are you? Where are you? And they're hiding. Finally, we find them in a closet or under the bed. Kids usually have their their favorite hiding places. I know that I had mine. why, why Why did you hide when you were a child? I'm sure many of you did that. Why do our kids hide from us? Probably for two reasons. One, we don't want to face what we've done. But even more, isn't it true that we don't want to face who we've wronged? We don't want to look at their face. We don't want to hear what they have to say to us. We don't want to feel the disappointment and the shame. Here, Adam and Eve have wronged God, and the question, where are you, is all about how God responds to this. I want to look at this question under two major headings. One, what does this question tell us about ourselves? Some very significant things about the human condition. Two, what does this question tell us about God? some very significant things about the divine response to the human condition. So first, what does this question show us about ourselves? If you're following along in your outline, you'll see some points and some blanks listed in the outline. This this question shows us one big thing about ourselves, and there are three facets of this one big thing that I want to explore from this text. What is the one big thing? The one big thing is that to live as a human being after Genesis 3 means we will all experience shame. Shame is a part of the human condition. It's not only just one of the issues that we have to deal with, that all of us have to contend with at some level. What this story and what this text shows us is that it's one of the core issues that every single person experiences and has to deal with. It's in everybody's story. It's in the story of humanity as a whole. Shame, it's a topic that's being talked about, I think, more openly with a lot of receptivity in our culture. Um, A few examples of that would be the clear stance that's being taken against bullying, bullying in schools, bullying, cyberbullying of all, all types and all sorts. We've come to recognize that bullying shames people. And that that shame is not at all insignificant, but that can cause deep hurt and deep shame, and that can come out in all sorts of ways. Another example you may have come across the work of Brene Brown. Has anybody watched that TED Talk? It's like one of the most famous TED Talks out there. I think it's a great talk. You should look it up on vulnerability and on shame. Brene Brown is a social researcher at the University of Houston, and she talks about at the root shame is, is one of the root causes of human disconnection. Uh, it's really good stuff. It's very important. Um, the, the topic of shame and its importance here at the very beginning of the Bible shows us why this topic, shame, why that connects with us at such a deep level. And that's because it's one of the most important aspects of the human condition. If you look at Genesis 2.25, the reason I had us listen to that at the beginning of the reading of Scripture is because it's a description. It's the Bible's description of what it was like, what it felt like to be a human being before the fall, before sin entered in and disrupted and disconnected us from God. It says in verse 25, chapter 2, that they were naked and unashamed, or they were naked and yet felt no shame. On the surface, yes, this means they were physically naked. That's why in all the kids' picture Bibles, Adam and Eve, they're standing behind a bush or a tree. They're strategically placed, and Eve has really long hair. Uh, But it's saying much more than this. It's making a connection between nakedness and shame, something outward and something inward. They felt no shame means that they were open. They were trusting. They were safe. They had nothing to hide. They could be totally and fully themselves without any fear of rejection or disapproval. They were seen for all of who they were. They were naked and they were loved and received as they were. But after they violate God's one rule, God's one command to them, the serpent deceives them, then everything changes about this. Their eyes were opened, it says, and then they knew that they were naked. Shame comes into the picture. Let's just define shame. What is it? The Bible says shame is one of the two main feelings or sensations or experiences we have because of our broken relationship with God. There's guilt and then there's shame, and we can distinguish between those two. Guilt is is that feeling that we've done something wrong, that we've committed some wrong act. Shame is the feeling that something is wrong with me. Guilt says, I've messed up, I've done wrong. Shame says, I am not enough. There is something wrong with me. I am bad, I don't matter. Shame is what we feel when we're afraid of rejection, disapproval, when our inadequacies or our flaws or our failures are exposed. Shame is not the same thing as embarrassment. The things we're embarrassed about, we can bring up and talk about later, and we can say, "Ah, that's funny, yeah, yeah, I was embarrassed. Shame, we would never bring up the things that we're ashamed about, and we would never laugh at those. So the question, chapter 3, verse 9, it shows us three things about how shame unfolds, how it works in the human story. Having defined shame, that's the one big thing. I want to look at three facets of that one big thing and how it works in our lives and in our stories. First, we all hide in shame. As I go through these three facets, I'm going to highlight one of the three words in that question. We all hide in shame. God asks, where are you? It's a question of whereabouts. After reading Genesis 1 and 2 about how God created everything that exists, simply by speaking the whole universe, the whole world, we know that God knows where Adam is. He's not trying to find him. He's not looking for him. The question is for Adam. It's for Adam to ask himself, yeah, where am I? And to verbalize the answer to that to God. The story emphasizes where Adam and Eve are. It's repeated before and after the question in verse 9. and verse 8, if you look at it, It tells us where they were. The man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees. Before, the question comes, and then verse 10, it's repeated. Adam says it. He says, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Where were they? They were hiding. Where are we? We are hiding. We are also hiding, too. Ed Welch, in his book on shame, says, hiding, covering up, self-protection, feeling exposed, these are all the telltale signs of shame. The voice of shame in us says, I can't let anybody see me for who I really am. Because if people saw me, if people knew me, they would reject me. They would not approve of me. And so we hide. We're hiding from God, and we're hiding... From each other. I remember speaking of hiding as little kids. The best feeling ever as a little kid is when you find a hiding spot that nobody else knows about. None of your brothers and sisters know about it. Your parents, they never look there. And so next time you play hide and seek, you have the perfect place to hide. No one's going to find you there. Shame, it leads us to find our favorite hiding places. If we're fully known, if we're fully seen, shame says we won't be accepted. So we all hide. Secondly, we all blame to evade the feeling of shame. God asks, Where are you? He also asks, Where are you? Where are you? It's a personal question that's directed to Adam. Adam says, I was afraid and so I hid. And that's a good, honest start for Adam. It's truthful. God goes on and says, he asks him another question. Who told you that you were naked? And here's where the blaming comes in. Every type of blame unfolds in this story. There's the blaming of others. Adam says, it's the woman that you gave me, pointing the finger at Eve. It's the woman that you gave me. He blames God. Then it's Eve's turn when God turns to her and says, well, what have you done? She says, Basically, the devil made me do it. The serpent deceived me, and so I ate. It was the situation. It was the circumstances. It was the weakness. It was my baggage. One of the main hallmarks of shame is also the judgment and the blame that comes from shame. It creates more disconnection between people. And blaming here in the story, and for us, it's one of the main ways that we get the attention and the spotlight off of ourselves. So we deflect it. We point the finger at other people, and other things. Shamed people shame people. That's where so much of our judgment comes from. Now, I want to make a very important disclaimer. This is very, very important, so hear me out on this. It is absolutely true after Genesis 3 that one of the main causes of shame in our lives is not only the things that we do, but things that happen and have been done to us. Abuse, neglect, abandonment, betrayal, Of other people things and that are not things that we have done but things that have been done to us not at all our fault not at all our doing and all this all these examples of shame it should bring shame to the perpetrators of those actions but instead what often happens is that it brings shame to the victims and that's one of shame's most horrible and terrible effects and it's this is how it's a tool and an instrument of evil and so in light of that, we can applaud efforts to acknowledge when, when things have been done to us that have caused deep shame in us, creating safe places for people to say that, to acknowledge that, and to hold people accountable is important. The point that I'm making here, though, is that the shame that we carry because of what we've done and what's been done to us cannot be healed by either wrongful blaming or by blaming, just blaming, rightful blaming alone. This question shows us that God wants to deal with us. He wants to deal with each one of us personally in our shame. God asks, where are you? He asks, where are you? He asks, where are you? The third facet of shame. We all cover ourselves to cope with our shame. When God asks, where are you? I think the word, the verb are, is significant. It's significant, significant that God leads with a question of being before he asks about doing. Later, he does ask, what have you done? It's an important question. It's not that our doing isn't important. It's that our being precedes our doing. What we do flows out of who we are, and who we are is always a matter of who we are in relationship to God and others. And shame goes after our being. In verse 7, it says, they made coverings for themselves. Adam and Eve needed something besides who they were to feel presentable, to feel acceptable, to feel safe around each other and around God. They weren't okay just being who they were anymore. That's what shame does. I don't know if you've had one of the most common nightmares. Psychologists say this is one of the most common nightmares to humanity. It's the nightmare where you show up to school or work, and you're not wearing any clothes. I don't know if you've had that nightmare. It's not a fun (laughs) nightmare to be in. Or maybe you're not completely unclothed, but you're, like, missing your shoes. For some reason, my dream is always, oh, I'm at school, and I don't have any shoes on. And I'm like no, like I need to go find some shoes, I need to cover up, and I'm feeling all this shame and embarrassment in that nightmare. That's getting, that that nightmare, if I were to interpret it in light of this story, is getting at our shame, that we're so afraid of being exposed, and so we cover up. So much of our doing in life amounts to our fig leaves the ways that we're trying to cover up our shame, that gnawing sense of inadequacy or fear or disconnection or judgment. If our being is rooted in shame, then our doing that will result and come out of our being will be covering up. There's so many ways we do this. We create personas. It's the image we're trying to portray. It can be our achievements. It can be our perfectionism, our busyness, the ways we appear adequate, together, successful, smart, spiritual. So often, so many of these things are just our covering, our fig leaves. That's the one big thing this question deals with. It deals with human shame. Those three facets of human shame are hiding, our blaming, and our covering up. But what about God and his response? I want to share three aspects of God's response, and each one of them is in parallel to the human response to shame. First, though we all hide in shame, God comes to find us in our hiding. Verse 8 tells us that God was walking in the garden in the cool of the day or the cool of the evening. Now, what is that all about? If you can picture it, it's an image, it's meant to to call to mind a certain image of God coming to take his evening walk to connect with this couple, the first couple, first humans that were ever made. Scholars say that this verb, the verb form, suggests a habitual action. This is what happened in the garden. This is what life is like before sin entered into the world. There's connection with God. There's intimacy with God. It was unhindered. It was a perfect relationship. And what we see here is that their sin, their shame, it doesn't drive God away. Instead, he continues to draw near. He keeps coming to them just as he always had. He approaches to connect with the people who have just ruined the world. They have just brought sin and the curse into his creation, its beauty, its glory, its goodness. And yet he comes, even when he was blatantly wrong to connect and to pursue them. It says he comes calling to them, "Where are you?" In other stories in the ancient Near East, there's sto- in the ancient Near East, there's stories of kings who are the covenant kings. they're the ones in control. When they call their subjects to account, "Where are you? Come." That's a confrontation in anger. Behind that question is, get here this instant, what are you thinking? What are you doing? Look at what you've done. What's wrong with you? God could have said all those things, but when he says, where are you? He's saying, it's safe. It's safe to connect with me, even after what you've done. And that question is the question we ask when it comes to our shame. Is it safe to come out of hiding? Can I be seen? Can I be known for all of who I am? my junk, my stuff, everything about me, and still be accepted and still be loved? The question tells us that with God, the answer is always yes. Here I want to share a little bit of my story. This question, where are you? Genesis 3.9. It has a very important place in my own life, in my own story. There are certain passages of Scripture that God in some ways just imprints on our souls, and this one is imprinted on my heart and on my soul. I want to take time to share that with you. I think a number of you will be able to relate. About 10 or 11 years ago, three years into my ministry in the church, during a day of prayer at a Franciscan monastery is when God met me with this question. During this time in my life, in in our marital life, in our marriage, In my ministry life, seeing the patterns that were going on, things happening in my own soul, in my heart that I didn't understand and I didn't express, and sinful patterns. It was all kind of coming to a head in my life. And I realized, I think I need help in processing and dealing with all this. And so Amelia and I started to go to regular marriage counseling. As, As stuff started coming out, I started seeing a therapist and a counselor as well, talking to my friends, talking to my fellow pastors. And the first thing that I realized was, wow, I am an expert hider. I never knew that about myself, that I was hiding in shame. I look back at my life story and realize there was hiding in being a good kid, being the good kid, being the responsible kid in a family that was dealing with alcoholism. Or I was hiding behind being the class clown so I could gain friends in middle school. Or hiding behind being the smart kid with academic achievements so that I could be approved and establish my identity. Hiding behind my knowledge of the Bible and my answers for what was wrong with Christianity and my self-righteous perspective. And through all this time of things coming out, I realized so much of it was just this facade that I was trying to keep up. That if people see me in this way, I'll be accepted, I'll be loved, I'll be approved and I'll accept myself, and it didn't work, and it was all very unpleasant to feel exposed, to feel weak, to feel needy, to feel vulnerable. That was all the stuff that I was trying to work so hard to avoid in my life, and God was saying, go there, and people were saying, go there. That's where you need to be, and so as I was dealing with all this, and and it really wasn't getting any better, and and I was like, well, what do I need to do? I'll go to a monastery and pray with the monks. Maybe something will happen there. And so I was by myself in a room, and I was praying, and I was just praying over and over again. God, where are you? Where are you? Where are you? I don't feel hope in any of this. I don't feel any light at the end of the tunnel. Where are you? And that's when, in opening up my Bible, I came to this question. And God said, where are you? So much of my life, I thought God was hiding. God, why don't you fix this? Why don't you address all this stuff going on? Are, why are you hiding from me? Where are you? And when this, when this passage just hit my soul, I realized it was me that was hiding from God. It the first time I realized that sorrow and weakness and fear and brokenness and even my sin were not things that made me a loser. They weren't things that made me unacceptable, too flawed, too weak, to be any good, that was the lie of my shame. That was the lie that Adam and Eve believed that drove them into hiding. And the truth was God didn't run from me, God didn't reject me, but God drew near to me, even when I thought I was at my worst. That he drew near to me so that I would come out of hiding. And that's what he wants for all of us. He comes to find us in our hiding. And so I'd ask you to consider this question. Consider the question where are you? Are you hiding? How are you hiding? God wants to meet you there. Second thing this question shows us about God is that we all blame to evade feeling shame, but He calls us out of our hiding. The question shows us the first step in God's cure for shame. He comes near to us. He pursues us when we feel unworthy. The second step is he calls us out of hiding. The question, where are you, was a question where God didn't just want an answer. He wanted to call them out of their hiding. To be called out of shame is to be called into vulnerability, to come out in their fig leaves and all their nakedness and to be honest about their own shame and the reasons why they were hiding. The cycle of shame goes like this. Shame thrives and it grows in isolation when it's hidden. And then shame creates disconnection, but the more disconnected we are, the more isolated we feel, the more ashamed we feel. Shame makes us go into hiding. Hiding creates more shame, and that drives us deeper and deeper into hiding, which drives us deeper and deeper into shame. And the cycle just continues until something stops that cycle and breaks in. What can stop that cycle? It's being vulnerable and open, being yourself in the presence of God, your full self. I came across this quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He said it so well, I'm going to read it for you. It'll be there on the slides. This is him interpreting this question, where are you? Be yourself, Adam, where are you? This word of the creator calls the fleeing Adam away from his conscience to stand before his creator. Humankind is not permitted to remain alone in its sin. God speaks to Adam and halts him in his flight. Come out of your hiding place, out of your self-reproach, out of your cover-up, out of your secrecy, out of your self-torment, out of your vain remorse. Confess who you are. Do not lose yourself in religious despair. Be yourself, Adam. Where are you? Stand before your Creator. We have to stand before God as we are. God calls us out of hiding. One of the lies that we believe is that we are alone in our sin. And as much as we think we can't bear to admit or to own our sin or our shame, God says to us, I already see it. I already know it. It's even worse than you think it is. It's even uglier than you know it to be. But it doesn't drive me away, and it doesn't stop me from loving you, from valuing you, and from calling you back to myself. Full, total, raw, honest confession before God. Shame cannot be cured without it. And most of us, to get there, we need the help of a trusted companion, a friend. Who can help us get there. Confession before God and others. I would ask you to consider this question. How is God calling me out of hiding? And I would encourage you, don't stay in shame any longer. Confess. Stand before your creator and be shocked and surprised at how he receives you. Three steps to cure our shame. First, know God comes near to us. He's not driven away by our shame. Second, He calls us out of our hiding to be vulnerable and honest. Third, receive from God the covering for your shame. Only God can cover our shame. If you look at the very end of the passage that we read, verse 21, 22 of chapter 3, the Lord God made clothing from skins for the man and his wife, and he clothed them you can just imagine that, we're meant to picture that as well in this story. There are Adam and Eve, shivering, scared, afraid, in their fig leaves, trying to cover up, and God draws near to them. They learn the the consequences, the curse of their choices in verses 13 through 20, that they will be expelled from the garden. But before God sends them out, he draws them near, and he covers them in these garments of skin. From here forward, clothing in the Bible, is a metaphor for acceptance, for worth, for identity, for approval. And there are two main ways that we try to clothe ourselves to deal with shame. There's a more liberal and progressive approach, and there's a more traditional religious approach. The liberal progressive approach says forget about all this talk of shame. Just clothe yourself with self-esteem. Tell yourself you're good enough, smart enough, doggone it, people like me. Just give yourself that positive self-talk. But there's so much research coming out after years of an emphasis on self-esteem that self-esteem actually drives us deeper into shame because we know that it's not true not substantial enough. The clothing doesn't work. The more traditional and religious approach says just fight back the shame. Clothe yourself in your self-effort. Put on your good deeds. Cover it up by being religious and trying harder. The problem with that is that's not enough either. We still know that inside there's something deeper. The imagery of clothing is a favorite one of the prophets. Isaiah 64.6 says, All of us has become like one who is unclean. All our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. In Zechariah 3.4, it says, He spoke and said to those who were standing before Him, Remove the filthy garments from Him. Again, He said to Him, See, I have taken your iniquity away from you and will clothe you with festal robes. As much as we try to hide, cover up, and avoid the feeling of shame, this question, where are you, is meant to show us that shame, the feeling of shame, the terrible and the horrible sense of shame is meant to lead us to the gospel. It's meant to lead us to receive the clothes that we can't give ourselves. There's something remarkable, a remarkable feature of this story, is that God, he didn't carry out the sentence that he said he would. Did you notice that? He said, the day you eat of that fruit, the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. The serpent said, no, you won't die. Did they die? On one level, there was a spiritual death that entered in. But on another level, they were alive, and they were clothed, and they were sent out of the garden. How? Well, there's only a hint here. There's a clue. We see that the clothing that God gave them, the way that he covered their shame, it says that this was clothes made of skins. What kind of skins? Probably animal skins. And so there's an implication that something had to die in order for Adam and Eve to be covered, in order for the problem of shame to be dealt with. What we see in the gospel is that in Jesus, God himself was clothed with shame so that we could be clothed in the righteousness, in the beauty, in the glory of Jesus. Just as Adam and Eve ate from the tree and hid behind the trees and bore the curse of shame, Jesus hung on the tree. He was clothed with shame in order that we could be set free. The cross, the symbol of the cross, a crucifix, it's such a common symbol for us. It's it's imagery that we're very familiar with. So it doesn't shock us. And so we've lost some of the cultural meaning and the shock value of its day. The cross was the ultimate form of degradation in the first century, the ultimate form of shame to both the Jewish mind and the Greek mind. It was crucifixion. Death was common. People saw death all the time. Punishment by death was also common. But crucifixion, someone being stripped naked and hanging publicly on a tree, it wasn't just to kill someone, it was to humiliate them and to shame them. What I I never noticed until this week as I was doing my study is that the words that Jesus spoke while he was on the cross. Many of them are rooted in the, in the Psalms. In these songs that were written on his heart, he was expressing himself in the language of the Psalms in his suffering. Psalm 22, Psalm 69, Psalm 31. The emotion of these Psalms, the feeling in these Psalms is shame. Let me show you this. Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In this psalm, the psalmist says, I am a worm and not a man. I am scorned and I am ashamed. Psalm 31, where Jesus says, into thy hands I commit my spirit. In that psalm, the psalmist says, I am ridiculed and forgotten. Psalm 69, where Jesus prayed, I am thirsty, and they they gave him vinegar. In that psalm, the psalmist says, I have endured insults. Shame has covered all my face. And the song of the suffering servant in Isaiah 53 says he was despised, rejected like someone people turn their face away from. The primary emotion, the primary feeling in the soul of Jesus on the cross was shame and humiliation. And I was joking a little bit earlier about how kids' Bibles don't portray Adam and Eve naked. It's inappropriate. It it seems embarrassing to us. But what about our images and pictures of Jesus? It's too much. It's going too far to not cover Jesus with a loincloth or something. That makes us feel too uncomfortable. But the cross is where we see the lengths that God would go to To set us free from shame, to undo and reverse shame in all its terrible effects in our lives and in our relationships. God chose, of all possible ways, to substitute Himself for us, crucifixion. Jesus said, It's necessary that I be crucified. It's a part of God's eternal plan. Why? So that He would give us the most perfect, the most complete, and effective covering for our shame. Jesus was naked so we would not have to be. In order for us to be honored, Jesus was disgraced and humiliated. In order for us to be accepted as we are in our sin and brokenness, Jesus was rejected and treated as our sin, even though he was perfect and whole. In Hebrews 12, verses 1 and 2, it says this about what was happening at the crucifixion. It says, for the joy set before him, Jesus, he endured the cross, despising the shame. Jesus scorned the shame. He despised the shame. How? It says, for this joy that was set before him. What was that joy? Well, the text doesn't define it for us, but as we see from the larger context of the letter and scripture, the joy had to do with his eventual reunion with the Father, but not alone, but with all of us. The joy was sharing his delight in the Father, the uninterrupted communion, feeling the value of the Father, the love of the Father, the acceptance of the Father with all of us. His joy was seeing each one of us set free from shame. to be holy and blameless and faultless before God our Father as we were created to be. The joy that Jesus had in setting us free from shame, he said that, if I set that before me, even the greatest shame that the world has ever seen, experienced on the cross, I scorn it, I despise it, I reject it for the sake of us. shame, an enemy vanquished by the cross of Christ. So as we conclude and as we move to communion this morning, I just want you to sit with that question. Where are you? As God asks that. To hear God say, I am there with you. I'm coming to find you. I'm calling you out, and I want to cover you. Let's take that in reflection and prayer to Him as we close right now and prepare for communion. Let's pray.